What's up? Welcome back to Barton and Bud. I'm Barton Simmons with Bud Elliott. Uh, wherever you are listening to us, just know you can get us on Spotify. You can get us on YouTube. You can get us where else? Anywhere you need to get us, uh, Bud. How you doing, man? What's uh, what's the latest? Doing well, man. Doing well. We're finally uh, finally got a little cold down here in Orlando. I had ice on the car this morning, uh, so that was Ooh, yeah. In Florida, we did. Man. Oh man, we got sun today. I'm 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 gonna cherish it uh, for the long winter ahead. But uh, I didn't know y'all got it down there. I I feel like if you get south of Tampa, it's kind of tropical and it just doesn't usually happen. But we 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 had a hard freeze overnight, man. So it's it's chilly here today for sure. Uh, we were going to talk mailbag today. You know, usually we do the game breakdowns, uh, but I feel like we've hit hit sort of a a point in the season. A, uh, a kind of a, a turning point where I think the big picture stuff begins to be the the more relevant uh, things to to comment on and, and dig into. And so, fortunately, uh, we we got a mailbag. We got fi- you know give us five star review. Give us a question. We'll dig into it. We've got we've got smart listeners that give us good questions. Uh, so I think we're loaded up with another good uh, good round of them today, aren't we, bud? We are, man. We are almost, by the way, to 700 reviews on Apple Podcasts. That'd be pretty cool. Uh, that may not sound like a lot, but just you know, from looking at other college ball podcasts out there and based on the fact that we started during a pandemic when, when folks were not really commuting to work and you know, it's, it's a crowded market, uh, I, the, the people who are above me are pretty impressed by, by us getting almost 700 during, during the football season. I, if you guys could do us a favor, especially when you're listening to the show, just pull up your Apple Podcast app, hit that five-star review, say something nice. Hell, Say something mean. I don't care as long as you give us five stars. I mean, Josh Josh Pate got another one the other day that was totally criticizing him, and I think the guy was so anxious to write something negative about Josh that he threw a five star out there. I'm like, hey. hey man, I'll count it. No that's, doubt, that's cool. Yeah, uh, yeah. So get, get us at seven hundred. Uh, we'll go ahead and open here with uh, Mike McDaniel VT. He asks a question for the mailbag: If Virginia Tech moves on from Fuente, who makes the most sense? Elliot garnering some consideration. I'm assuming that's Tony Elliott. Uh, but is he the right guy to bring back recruiting prowess in the state in a manner that's needed? How attractive of a job do you guys believe Tech is to those outside the program? Well, first of all, I think it's very attractive. Um, I think, you know, even as as some of these other jobs have have come open and emerged this cycle and then some of the sort of jobs that are just hanging out on the periphery with with threatening to open up, um, I've, I've talked to coaches that have been like, yeah, I mean, Virginia Tech would be one I'd want. I think because I think there's a, there's a football culture there that is in, intriguing and, and compelling. I think a recruiting footprint there where you can find success and probably right now, one of the bigger, uh, selling points, there's an opportunity there. Um, yeah, there, there's sort of some wins for the taking. Um, and so I got I've got a list. I got a few names. Um and and I I, th- I think it's interesting that the the commenter went to recruiting like who can re-energize recruiting. And I guess that ma- I mean that matters obviously, but Virginia Tech doesn't strike me as the type of place where you have to have top 15 recruiting classes, top 10 recruiting classes to to play on the field in a, an elite level. Again, I think I sort of some of that old lunch pail, Bud Foster, Frank Beamer um, vibe and, and, and program sort of culture 
lingers to where you could, I think you can get athletes that maybe aren't super polished and have a really strong developmental system and, and, and play at an elite level at that program. Um, so I don't necessarily put like recruiting at the top of my list. I put, I think, I mean, there's all, there's sort of a baseline level recruiting everyone has to have, which I would, which would rule some people out. Uh, but I, I put more of a, someone that can, is a good football coach uh, that is a good player development guy that can build a strong culture. I mean, I, that's a refrain from a lot of my head coach conversations, but um, kick it off, bud. You got anybody? So I, I actually think Tony Elliott would, would be a great hire. I mean, like it is very well known in, in, in the industry. If you talk to agents, if you talk to other coaches, that Tony Elliott is is going to pick a place that he can win at. And I've never talked to Tony Elliott about this, but this is just the perception really kind of for both those Clemson coordinators. The, you know, the, the idea is that like Venables doesn't want to go somewhere unless he can coach really elite level athletes. I, I think Tony Elliott is smart enough. I mean, I, he's what, an engineering grad? The, the yeah. guy's not, you know, not just some, you know, some dude who, who had a, a nothing major and, you know, became a ball coach. Not there's anything wrong with that. Uh, but like, he's smart. He, he's going to pick a place he can win. I, I think you can win at Virginia Tech. I, I think now would be the time to take the tech job because you're, you're, you know, you're one coach removed from Beamer. They have been recruiting pretty poorly, I would say, or over the last, what, four years, five years. Fuente has not recruited well. The last two years of Beamer, they really didn't recruit all that well. So I, my guess is that's where Mike's, you know, the recruiting part of Mike's question comes. It's like, sure. They're not going to have top 10 recruiting classes in Blacksburg. I've been to Blacksburg almost any way you try to get to Blacksburg. It's a huge pain, right? So you do have to have somebody who can convince guys to get to Blacksburg, but I, I agree with you. I think it's more of a cultural job, more of a developmental job. Um, assuming that your expectations are, are reasonable, right? And I don't think the, empty glass case to win a national championship at Vatech is a reasonable expectation. They're not in that kind of circle of teams, even on the periphery of them that I think have a like legitimate national title chances. 99 with, with you know, with Vic accepted. Mm-hmm. But if you're saying, Hey, like, can you win the coastal, you know, a decent percentage of the time? Can you be competitive and consistently be eight and four or better, you know, nine and three or, or better. I think that's a reasonable expectation that can be accomplished at Virginia Tech. Um, you know, we associated him with Southeastern jobs and also with Baylor last offseason. Man, what do you think Napier would do well here? Because I, I kind of do. Yeah, I actually, as that game, as that job was looming, um, and look, I, not to rehash the South Carolina stuff, but it sounds like South Carolina got who they wanted. Uh, sounds like they wanted Shane Beamer. Uh, and, and Shane Beamer impressed him and, and that's who they, they went after, um, where Napier, I mean, Napier was clearly involved, but how much of that was Napier backing out? How much of that was, was South Carolina picking Shane Beamer? It probably depends on who you ask, but I always had a suspicion that Napier may be looking at this South Carolina job and thinking, all right, that looks like a good spot. That looks like an opportunity. But I, I wondered if just sort of back of his mind, he's like, yeah, I mean, that's a good job, but I'm I wonder when that Virginia Tech job is going to come open. Cause that's, again, that's an easier job to win at. It's a, uh, it's, it's in some ways a place I think with um, a little bit more attainable expectations. And I think, I, so yeah, I think, I think Billy Napier would be a great fit. I think Tony Elliott makes sense as well. Um, you know, I think last year, 
in Will Healy's first year at Charlotte, you know, he had a really strong first season this year, COVID issues have popped up and it hadn't, it hadn't been as it's been some more struggles. You know, he was pacing towards maybe being a candidate for that kind of job. I don't think he really is at this point, but um, you know, maybe next year we'll see what happens there. Um, of course he's in the mix for Vanderbilt as well. Uh, I think that, I think this would be a great fit for Mike Elko. Uh, you know, again, this is the type of job I think that not only can go the defensive route, but maybe even should just sort of the, the hard nosed mentality, like sort of the toughness that a defensive coordinator, defensive coach might bring to the job. Like that fits, I think that, that, that Virginia tech culture. So I think Mike Elko makes sense. I think Clark Lee makes sense. Um, Lance Leipold kind of makes sense for every job to me, just as a guy that knows how to win. And then uh, Jamie Chadwell is the other one. That's just, you know, he's going to be, he's going to be a candidate for every job that opens up right now, I think. All right, so if, if, if all four of these jobs were open right now in the ACC Coastal, I, I want you to tell me in order where you would place Vatek. So Miami, Georgia Tech, UNC, and the Hokies. Where in your mind does this Virginia Tech job rank? One. Ooh, okay. That's, what do you think? I, I really think it's close. What do you expect like, me to say? Probably two. I thought you would hedge a little bit. With with what Miami is one probably Miami or or UNC just because their their access to talent is, is is seemingly greater. I think you could make a case for UNC as one. Um, the so may, I would my might would go Virginia Tech one UNC two Miami three and part of it is again because Miami has these national championship expectations and yes they are in a very talent rich area, but I I just think the you know, the, the, the gap between expectations and reality needs a little more bridging there. Um, and Virginia tech, I think it's, I don't know. It just feels like that's a, that's just like a place that feels like it's close. Yeah. I think Fuente has done some stuff there that it, that has actively sabotaged his chances of success. I, I don't think that the things going wrong with the Hoagies are, like internal program stuff that is outside of his control. I, I think he's made some missteps there. Um, and, you know, I, I don't think he's all that into recruiting. That That's a fair answer. And I, with Georgia Tech, obviously, I think that th- th- it's a sexy job in theory. You hear a lot of coaches talk about, hey, that'd be a cool job to get. There's so much talent in, in Atlanta. You know, like we know some coaches who actually wanted the, the, the Georgia Tech job and didn't get it. Uh, but it's theoretical, right? They, I was five years old the last time Georgia Tech was legitimately an, an elite level, you know, team. So what, ninety or ninety one was the year they, whatever year that was. I remember, but Georgia Tech, like that thing, has been so just beat down from. Like, that's why. That's why you're kind of. I mean, Paul Johnson didn't try in recruiting, which right. which kind of just again sort of sabotaged things in terms of what the ceiling could be, um, but. Yeah, that thing's been beat. Like it's hard to even like you guys sort of shake your shake yourself a little bit and, and and like realize what Virginia Tech could do and what they can be capable of. And that's why it's exciting because I think that I think Jeff Collins embraces that and is going to try to push for that. But um, so I think we'll we'll figure out pretty quick what Georgia Tech is capable of because I think he'll get the recruiting right and the the branding obviously is sort of his specialty. All right, who do we got next? Uh, let me see. Let me pull this this bad boy up. So, um, Bucks nine. Yeah, Are there so. any schools who might be on the verge of having their best recruiting class ever? I, I thought this was a cool question because we talk so much about 
all right, who's going to finish number one? Will it be Bama? Will it be Ohio State? And we, we could have done that basically every single week of the year past about uh, June, whenever you know Bama picked up the big offensive tackle from IMG. But there are some schools out there. I went ahead and pulled this. Shout out Chad Carson for, for giving me this, this data pull. Um, man, you picking up those sirens in the background? That you? Yeah. All right. Oh, yeah, there you are. Mean streets of... Man. Of Winter Springs, Orlando. Florida. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, all right, we'll just go with the siren for, for Oregon. Oregon's first on my list here. Uh, Oregon actually has a pretty good shot uh, of signing the top-rated recruiting class that they have ever had. And, I mean, that, that's a testament to, to Mario Cristobal. I mean, they currently sit at number five right now uh, in looking at Oregon's all-time class rankings. Uh, I mean, the best that they've ever been was seventh, and that was their their 2019 class. So the, the Ducks have a legitimate chance to be you know fifth or better. Hell, even if they finish sixth, uh, you know they, they could even at seventh they would tie their best ever class. Uh, kind of a sneaky one here that that has been under the radar to me, and, and I had to look this up when I saw it. Do you, have you seen where Wisconsin sits in our rankings? I mean, they're where they they're sixteenth. Mm-hmm. Best the best Wisconsin has ever finished, according to this data poll, was twenty sixth. I mean, that's a big, that's a beatdown on on their their you know, their prior higher water market as a program. That's that's pretty impressive, man. Well, it helps. You know, they got they got a five star in Nolan Rucci. Um, anytime you get in a five star type of kid, that's that's big for your rankings. Um, but it's a deep class. Like it's um it's it's got pretty. This is one of the usually you got a couple of good offensive linemen at the top of a Wisconsin class, and then a bunch of sort of projections we'll say um this one's got it's i think goes pretty deep like a lot deeper in the four star range and the high three star guys um so i th- th- they are doing a good job and i think they got a really good quarterback in this class by the way kid named deacon hill out of california I, i've I got a got a sneaky good feeling about him a few of their three stars are even guys we have as four stars so if you just go by the 24 7 rankings it's probably even better than it would be in the composite so props just to wisconsin getting it done on the trail all right, here's one, a team that we've kind of championed all year. And I, I think these guys deserve some, you know, some, some credit. We, we talk about Jamie Chadwell and how creative his offense is at Coastal and how hard his guys play for them and how their defense is actually pretty salty. I don't know if we've spoken enough about how good of a job they've done with, with talent acquisition. And that, that's Coastal. You know, Coastal, actually, they have the 84th rated recruiting class as of today on, on, on the composite. Best they've ever done is 99th. And look, there's a lot of flexibility when you get this far down in the rankings, but you know, shout out coastal pretty nice job. It's, it's kind of rare to see a Sunbelt team, you know, have 12 of their 16 current commits rated three stars. That's, that's pretty good accomplishment for them. Yeah. And I mean, to a degree you would have, you would expect it, uh, but they've, and I mean, obviously there's a, there's a staff that does a really good job with talent evaluation and identification and, um, and, and, you said as, as high as they are sort of ranked relative to where we're used to seeing a Sunbelt team, they only have 16 commits. And so it is a, um, that's a, that's a light number. Um, so even with a light number, this is a good class. Uh, here's another one for you. How about Minnesota? Minnesota with, with the, the 26th rated class right now, again, a disappointing year on the field, but PJ flex message on, on the recruiting trail really kind of, you know, just it continues to resonate. Yeah, I mean the big ones there. Like they've got a couple again. Like PJ Fleck is is really good. I've, I've I've always been very impressed with 
Fleck and Minnesota's ability. Really, I mean, they, they kind of did a good job of this even before Fleck was there, but their ability to evaluate guys with a high ceiling. And um, they've done a really good job of that in this class. And they've got a couple of guys that are already sort of that four-star, no, no doubt sort of ranking range as well. But I think, I think they're the type of staff that identifies length, identifies speed, identifies like athletic and physical traits beyond just what the football film shows you that, uh, that they do a really good job of developing. And so that they're, the more they win though, the more they can take, uh, get in the fight on a couple of these guys, like a, uh, Avante Dickerson out of Nebraska who had offers from everybody, you know, th- those type of wins start to come easier when you're playing for big 10 championships. Two guys that always stand out in my mind when talking about PJ flex recruiting ability. First, Rashad Bateman, right? Minnesota was early on him, so they showed the identification ability there. But then Florida State and Georgia wanted Rashad Bateman down the stretch. Now, they didn't want him before his senior year, but they definitely wanted him after his senior year in high school. And I thought, okay, if not Florida State, then Georgia's going to get this kid, right? They're, they're going to green light him. They're going to flip. And and ultimately, you know, I know Georgia was even later in, in the process because they were competing for the number one class in that year. Fleck does a tremendous job of getting these guys heads. Hey, we were here first for you. You're you're not just a a piece of our plan. You are a major part of our plan. And then the following year, uh, James Gordon, the the linebacker out out of Florida as well, who's been a good player for them already, uh, is same deal. Major Southeastern powers wanted him down the stretch. Minnesota had offered him, I believe, probably before his junior year, and they kept him the whole time. It's it's impressive to, to pull Southeastern kids to Minnesota, right? When, when you have, uh, quote, unquote, better or bigger offers, you know, kind of closer to home. No doubt. By the uh, way, one, one of their best recruits this, this cycle is a kid named Devin Eastern, who's right there in Minnesota. I think he's he's got a chance to be the stud of this 20. He's a big 6'6", former basketball player, defensive lineman, uh, really intriguing guy. We're, we're, we're pretty high on him, like over 100 spots higher than the industry. Yeah, yep. Here's a, here's a shocker for you. Barton Clemson is set up to have a pretty good recruiting class. Yeah, that's what's scary for, I think, you know, it should be scary for teams is Clemson has been playing and competing for national championships with these rosters that were, had five stars at the top, um, you know, had a, had a smattering of four stars, but then had a pretty healthy a chunk of program guys, three-star types. And then as they started playing and competing for national championships, that, that those program guys have become four stars because that's just, everyone wants to play at Clemson now. Like their pick, the, the pool they're picking from has grown. And so last, this is the, this current roster driven largely by what was last year's Dabo Sweeney's highest ranked recruiting class ever. Um, so driven largely by the freshmen on campus right now, this is currently Clemson's most talented roster they've had according to our recruiting rankings. And with an addition of this 2021 class next year will be even more talented than this year's roster. So think if you just think about that and those terms, how dominant Clemson's been and they're getting more talented, it is a little bit scary. Oh, there's no doubt about it. Uh, the, the thing with Clemson is going to be, as you get more interest from kids all over the country, not just in your own backyard in, in South Carolina, not just in, in the surrounding states and, and Florida where, where they've recruited you know, extremely well for a long time, thanks to Dabo and Jeff Scott. You know, Jeff's now the head coach at, at USF. It's 
can, can you maintain that same Clemson culture, which has allowed them to play uh, for a nas- national title and win multiple natties under Dabo with more three stars on a roster than you would normally expect a national champion to have, right? Like they, their, their formula has been difference makers at key positions, most notably quarterback, and then a real kind of winning culture and, and not, you know, as, as they say, they're not, not have, have a ton of knuckleheads on the roster and taking just enough knuckleheads to where everybody else on the roster can you know, get them to be you know, good Clemson kids, basically. As they expand their, their footprint, you know, that, that's, that's kind of their challenge. But I, I think Clemson can be so picky right now that they're, they're going to be able to continue to do that. I, they probably won't have the best recruiting class ever. Last year, they were third. This year, that they are sixth, as we sit here. But, I mean, if things happen, they, they certainly could. Uh, you got anybody else that you want to hit on? Yeah, let, let's let's run through a couple. Uh, Iowa actually surprised me here a pretty good bit. Iowa is where's Iowa at right now? Twenty uh, third. Uh, the best recruiting class finish I've ever seen with Iowa is uh, is sixth in two thousand five, which is kind of crazy. But if you look at their second best recruiting class ever, it's twenty sixth. So uh, Iowa's, I mean. 2005 recruiting rankings, not quite as good as they are today. I, I don't think we didn't have as much digital film going around back in 2005. We didn't have the same kind of camp stuff. Um, 20, you know, a, a finish inside the top 25 for Iowa is is actually really rare, and so they, they've done a good job with this. Well, early in the process, I was talking to someone at at Iowa, and they were saying this was the best in-state crop of talent uh, of the Kirk Ferentz era. So. Uh, that explains why they're recruiting well this cycle in the, from a ranking standpoint because it's just it's it's a it's an unprecedented like I think they've they offered more in-state kids even this was just by the spring than than they ever had in the history of the, the Kirk Ferentz era so um, it's just a it, it's a good opportunity that they're capitalizing on um, and it, it's a, it is a really good class that that's that is I'm, I am a little bit surprised though that twenty third would be their highest ranked class ever but I guess. I guess it's not shocking. Uh, okay, and three I want to close with here. Cincinnati, no surprise, obviously. The, the, the job Luke Fickle's done there. They, they had, the, what the, I think, the highest rated G5 class last year. Uh, UNLV, who I think has made some savvy hires. And, and Arroyo, for, for all the questions we had about him when he was Mario Cristobal's offensive coordinator, uh, he is a good recruiter. And they, they are aggressively recruiting and, and evaluating kids. So UNLV uh, – probably going to have their best or second best class ever. And then Charlotte as well uh, under Will Healy. I mean, obviously it's, it's a newer program, but, uh, but th- those, those three G five certainly deserve a shout out. Yeah. And, and they've just, I mean, Cincinnati, they do such a good job, not only of recruiting, but that's another program like, man, you know, keep an eye out for their two stars because someone in there is probably going to be a stud. Um, they've done a really good job of, of evaluating and developing. No doubt. All right. So, uh, this guy, Brennan King, who actually has uh, has asked us two questions before, so I think he might be the f- first guy to get three questions on the show. He says, hey, this question came to me. I'm a Clemson alum and admitted homer. Uh, to a friend of mine who's an SEC homer, how would a perfectly healthy Clemson team hang in there with an all-SEC team in a regular game? <laughs> All right. Now, he has he has some some details here that he wants to fill in the, the, the listenership, which I think are necessary. Otherwise, we would just skip this. This means we have Justin Ross, Joe Nagata, Frank Ladson, Xavier Thomas, and Tyler Davis, all of whom have been banged up uh, or not played this season. Uh, 
I said that we would definitely hang in there, but ultimately lose. My SEC friend said we would be crushed by four touchdowns. I say two touchdowns. Reason being Trevor Lawrence and Travis Etienne. Uh, Trevor is the best quarterback in the nation, and Travis is at least a top-two running back. Other positions would uh, only be marginally disadvantaged against the all-SEC team. We'd basically be playing uh, Alabama, adding Pitts and maybe Trask. Uh, our offensive line would struggle, uh, but there are ways around that. Lengthy, uh, lengthy, but hopefully we'll make for a good discussion. I'm not, at least he's not saying they're going to win. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you're basically asking what would Clemson do against an NFL team. It's kind of one of those scenarios. Um, I mean, granted, it would be a it would be an all rookie NFL team. It wouldn't be some group of veterans, but talking all star SEC team, you got to think about what that receiving group looks like. Um, you know, you got yeah, you got Pitts, you got Devonte Smith too. You got a. a I mean, you could just take Alabama's offensive line if you wanted to. Um, you got a, a loaded defensive front. Um, I just, I don't know, man. Can you talk yourself into this being a close game? If if Xavier Thomas and Tyler Davis were were known studs, right? Not just known potential guys. Right. Yeah. That's the thing. Like those guys not aren't even like that good. I mean, they're good. They're good. They're good. Yeah, but they're not right. like, like Justin Ross. I don't know where okay. they're getting drafted. We both agree he's a stud. But Jonah God and Frank Ladson are all potential. Now, you can give Clemson the benefit of the doubt and say, look, with their track record at receiver, they probably developed these guys. Hell, they got Cornell Powell playing well right now. and He came from pretty much out of nowhere. But, man, Clemson has struggled to run block a little bit this year. I don't think playing an all-SEC team of defensive linemen would particularly play well against that. I think Clemson's linebackers are potentially vulnerable in coverage, especially against some of the better slot receivers, you know, in, in the SEC. Um, I, yeah, I, I think there are some, some weaknesses here that, that an all SEC team would just dominate. And I, I, I don't see it. Like you're going to have to match up against Kyle Pitts, Devonte Smith, whomever else you want to put, like you want to just throw George Pickens out there. Cause you know, he can beat single coverage. I, I Good luck with that. You're probably not going to get close to Kyle Trask or Mac Jones or whomever you want the quarterback to be. Pro- That's an interesting debate. Would you rather have Trask behind Bama's offensive line? I, it, I think it kind of depends. Um, and the secondary for this all-SEC team would totally punk Clemson's receivers. I mean, think about the two guys that, that, that South Carolina just had opt-out. I mean, Mukuamu and Horn, would they even be first-teamers? On this team, you got you got Pat Sertan, you have Eric Stokes, you have R- Richard LeCount. You, it, I mean, obviously, you know, pre-motorcycle injury. It, yeah, this I think this is a runaway. Good effort, though. It's good. It's a good let, try, Clemson. Fan. Let me flip this on you. I think I have a fair, a more fair question. Okay. Would would Clemson? Would an all healthy Clemson team? beat an all ACC team that did not have Clemson. I, I mean, I would have to think about this, but my, my initial hunch is just, just still a no. Hey, are we, yeah, I agree. you know, um, I just think now granted, like we're, we're assuming this all-star team is an actual team, not just throwing together week of, and I mean, we're assuming this right. is a team that's had all off season to gel and uh, coalesce and, and have get the system installed and all that stuff. So, with that said, I uh, there's still some. I mean, there's still some pretty dang good players in the ACC that aren't on Clemson's roster. Uh, might be a little closer, but I'm still going. I'm still going all stars. All right, so I, I'm just going to take Miami's defensive ends and then put them on Notre Dame's defense. I get Notre Dame's offensive line. 
there's plenty of receivers in the league who you can cobble together. Uh, I mean, do, do I get the guys who opted out for Louisville? They're they're pretty explosive. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that, that team's going to be Clemson too. Not by as much as the all-SEC team, but they're still going to beat them. Uh, okay, so JPED9 wants to know, recently we've seen some college basketball recruiting analysts get hired by NBA teams. Do you see this happening with college football recruiting analysts getting hired by the big-time college football programs? Do college coaches ever reach out to recruiting analysts to get information or opinions on a recruit or info on where a kid is leaning? So I don't think you're going to see a trend of recruiting analysts jumping to college football in the same way it happens with the NBA because there's the, the, the NBA and um, well, I guess you could make a case. I mean, look, you could make a case that like the reason that, that recruiting the NBA, there's a demand for um, help in the NBA from recruiting guys is because of how, how closely high school and NBA is, is tied. Like there's just, there's in most cases, there's like a one year gap between a guy being um, a college guy and, a, and an NBA guy. And that even that is, is, is going to be erased at some point. So it makes sense that the NBA is going to try to sort of lean on um, recruiting analysts to sort of get, get some insight there. Um, so I guess in that sense, you can make a case that, you know, the college could, could look, turn to the same sort of, resources, but I don't know. I mean, I think first of all, you do. Yeah. There's, there's communication all the time between college coaches and recruiting analysts, um, all over the country, all over the place. Um, it's a pretty steady back and forth. Um, and it's, it's, I think it's, it's a, uh, mutually beneficial in, you know, conversation, you know, we figure out who they like things that they are, um, valuing players that they may be underrated or overrated stuff. They know height weights they may have that we don't have access to all those sort of things. And we have a lot of the same information that we can pass back to them as well as sort of the, um, the recruiting information in terms of where guys are leaning and who we talk to and, Oh, I've talked to this guy and you, you know, we may be getting a message that they're not. And, and of course, vice versa there as well. So there is a lot of that that goes on. Um, I don't know. Do you think, do you think we'll see some, some guys bounce from recruiting to college in the future? Probably not. Um, not, not certainly not as a trend. Um, there's a couple of reasons for this. I think you hit on most of them. Um, also the, the pay, like you, you wouldn't, you're not going to run for like, you're not going to go from being Barton Simmons, you know, director of scouting 24 seven sports to probably being like the number one personnel guy at like a big time power five program that, that that's just probably a too, too radical of a move. Even though I think that you could actually do it if you knew the NCAA rules and like, you may need a guy like compliance dude to help you out, you know, on that kind of stuff. When, when can you mail out certain things and whatnot? But it just, it seems a little too out of the box for probably most of these guys. Although, you know, James Franklin has done outside the box stuff before. So I, who knows? Maybe I'll lose my, a coast here next year or something, but oh, you think Franklin's gonna hire me? I mean, dude, Franklin is as you know, he's gone like D three to hire coaches before. He, true. he likes to think outside the box. Um, you know, he was an adopter of analytics earlier than a lot of other coaches. But um, I, I do wonder if not for the evaluation side of things, as the transfer portal becomes more important, and as we see players transferring who are earlier in their college careers than ever before, which I think we'll see a lot of, especially after this year, because you're going to have a lot of kids get homesick uh, 
much like Eric Gilbert probably did uh, after just a year because they never visit a lot of these schools. You know, I was looking at Florida State's thing last night. Even Florida State, a team that is taking a lot of kids from its own state, eight half of their commitments have never visited the, the campus and met with the staff. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's crazy. Mm-hmm. I wonder if the portal might cause a little bit of this, right? Like, hey, you're a guy that has a bunch of relationships with these kids, with these high school coaches, with the handlers, the seven-on-seven dudes, all that kind of stuff. Can you be an in on where this kid might be looking to go? I, I could see maybe somebody taking that job. But the, then again, if you're not getting the main gig, the hours and the pay are, are not that great. College football is very much like a – it's it's I'm going to say it, it's a pyramid scheme, but there's a whole lot of dudes in those front offices who make 38, right? And, you know, Maggie's not going to be real cool if I go take a job, make a 38, and live in a college town. Well, I think the um... – a lot of people think that guys that are in the media sides can't like are, are in there because they 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 couldn't get hired on the college side, and I have tremendous respect for the guys in the college side. But there are there are positives to not being on that side. I don't have to worry about whether or not the guys are going to get it done on Saturday, and I'm going to have my job taken from me, and then I got to move from Nashville to you know, Ames, Iowa or something, or, you know, like the, there's, there are like I, most of the people that are, I wouldn't see most. I mean, I'd say pretty much everybody in our industry right now is they're not like recruiting office rejects. They're just guys that chose to go media. Um, yeah. And so, uh, you know, that said, you know, the guys that do a good job on the, the college side of it are, um, are guys that I have immense respect for. And, um, I'm fascinated by their job. I try to study it all the time. Try to try to learn from it. And, and most of them are doing it because they they want to move up, right? Like they want to they want to either be like the DPP, uh, they they want to be the next Mark Pantoni, right? Or because they want to use the player personnel side or the player dev side to get onto the field in an on-field coaching role. Like mm. that they, they, they don't they see it as as kind of a means to an end for the most yeah, it's part. Been, you know the the roles evolved. It used to it used to be a lot more of that, and I feel like now as the pay is starting to increase, as more resources are being poured into uh, uh, the the back end of, of football departments, uh, it's starting to be more of a that you know a GM of a football program or director of player personnel started to be more of a destination job. Um, but that's been, I think uh, just over the last really kind of, I don't know, three to five years is, is that, is, that has started to evolve rapidly to where that is much more of a uh, destination job. But yeah, you're, I think you're right. Like in the 10 years ago, 15 years ago, it was, that was much more of a, you know, kind of a slappy sort of job that they, but, but I think people have realized how important it is. And so it was really elevated in, uh, not only in pay, but in, in just prestige within those, those buildings, I think. There's no doubt. It's really, really important. The other, other area I could see recruiting analysts getting into is as name image likeness passes more, the, these agencies are going to need people who know these, 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 you know, now college, previously high school kids have good relationships with them. Um, I mean, look at Evan just went and got, you know, Evan Daniels, shout out Evan Daniels. Uh, you know, I worked with for like a week. Before he left here at twenty four seven, you worked with for much longer. You know, he, he's working now on on the agent side, right? So, mm-hmm. um, I could see that happening, right? Like, because these agents don't like on the football side; these agents do not keep track of the recruits to the extent that the basketball guys have been keeping track of the recruits quite as much. So, they could need somebody to bridge 
that relationship because now most of the way that these state laws are being written, you can actually have an agent rep you for your marketing type deals. You know, like that, that's so that, that could be the start of that relationship uh, for sure. And that's going to be important in, because I think for the most part, like we haven't talked about this a whole lot, but most of these kids who are going to be able to get name image likeness stuff, their NFL representation is going to be spoken for far in advance because of, of the name image likeness relationship uh, than it is now. All right. We'll uh, head on to the ad break and catch you back on the other side and talk uh, some defensive head coaches. We'll be back. Hello, everyone. It's Michael Richards here. You might have seen me on CBS working on their Champions League coverage over the last couple of years. I wanted to tell you about an exciting new podcast that I've been working on. It's called The Rest is Football. It's me, alongside Gary Lineker and Alan Shearer, two absolute legends of the game. The show combines topical debate from the world of soccer along with outrageous tales from our careers. And I mean, outrageous. Just search The Rest is Football wherever you get your podcasts. All the best from Big Meats. All right, welcome back. Tennessee Vols 615, a Nash Number one, he wants to know, why is it the defensive coordinators have become head coaches uh, like Pruitt, Muschamp, Kirby Smart, Vic Fangio, etc.? predominantly run extremely conservative offenses. They have to see you're not winning anything meaningful these days without an explosive offense. Saban figured it out. Just run what's hardest to defend and it works. Secondly, as a Tennessee fan, this year has been awful. However, am I wrong to think this roster isn't that bad and it's mostly a quarterback problem? So I think the two best examples of defensive head coaches succeeding recently are literally the guys who they went out and hired what really is difficult to defend for them. Bob Stoops is famous for saying, I went and got Mike Leach because he was the only guy who gave me fits when I was the DC at Florida, when, when Leach was under the Hal Mummy at, at Kentucky. And obviously that worked really well at Oklahoma. Saban, I think, was annoyed by Lane Kiffin for a while and then realized, wait a second, like I got uh, Old Miss dropping points on me here with, with, with stuff that shouldn't work. They're, they're messing with my coverage rules and – it's just way too easy to score points now. I, I have to embrace this trend. He goes out. He gets Lane Kiffin. <laughs> he doesn't have Lane Kiffin anymore. He gets Steve Sarkeesian. He's a little more, uh, you know, uh, palatable. And, and and he's embraced it. But for every Stoops, for every Saban, uh, there are a lot of these defensive guys who, yeah, it does seem like it does seem like it's more punitive to your chances of success now to run an ultra conservative offense in an era and in a rule environment that is just so freely allowing for points. I mean, you have Nick Saban out there on TV saying he thought his defense played really well and he gave up 35 a decade ago. We just wouldn't have that. That was unheard of to give up 35 like Kirby smart this year. I think it only lost one or prior you know, to this year. It only lost one game in which his team allowed 30 plus points. And now like that's kind of routine. Um, I, but I think it's difficult to not dance with what brung you, right? Most of these guys who got hired, who are defensive head coaches, got hired because they ran great defenses and because they recruited a boatload of talent. And it, I think it's hard for them to, to shift. I mean, Saban didn't make his shift until after he got like a couple national titles. Not that their offenses were bad, but they were just more conservative, and they played to his defense. Bob Stoops, I think, is a unique case because literally – 
he was the DC for Steve Spurrier, a guy that you know scored points in bunches, especially relative to his era. And he did go up against Mike Leach and, and probably thought, man, what could I do with Mike Leach's offense if I had, you know, elite level talent, not Kentucky type dudes. It's just tough. And Vic Fangio the other night, at, we're going to have a guest on Barton and Bud soon. And we're going to we're going to talk to you about this. But the Fangio thing, the Broncos head coach, I mean that that's the wrong punt decision if you're playing the New York Jets. If you're playing Patrick Mahomes, that's like a fire you before you get on the plane home decision. Like you, you can't. I mean, that's that's tough to trust your defense that much. I would argue that the best coach in football is Bill Belichick. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Is Bill Belichick a defensive guy or an offensive guy? I think you got to say he's a defensive guy. Right. He's a defensive guy. But, you know, Dean Pease, I think it was on um, the Make Defense Great Again podcast with Coach Vass. I think Dean Pease said that, like, when he was at, in, when, with the Patriots, that Belichick wouldn't even, like, he didn't even really meet with the defense during the first part of the week. Like, he would just, Dean Pease would put in this game plan. And all Belichick's time was spent with uh, with Tom Brady and and seeing what he sees. And I, I say that you know I you know like he, Belichick has a defensive background, but the reason I ask that is I think a lot of people really wouldn't even know whether he's a defensive guy or an offensive guy because Belichick's thumbprints or fingerprints are on the the game plan on both sides of the ball. Like they complement each other. And I think if you're going to be a a great coach you've got to you've got to pull back think big picture and think about how these two things complement each other because the same thing the same critique up for a defensive coach about you know running these conservative offenses that give you you know give you def- keep your defense fresh and all this stuff but don't really give you a chance to win they can they're made all the time for offensive coaches that just all they want to do is score points and all that matters is scoring points and if our defense is gassed and we don't help our defense out. Who cares? I'm an offensive guy. Like I remember in college, we our, our head coach was an offensive guy, and we would we would come, you know, you know, huddle up with as a team after practice, and if we like put it on them in practice, if the defense like dominated, it was a it was a it was a bad practice. We had a terrible <laughs> practice. The whole team had a terrible practice because the offense couldn't move the football. It's like, well, hold on, coach. We were we were kicking y'all's ass. Like, what about us? Like we had a good practice. So I think that it's just hard to shake that sort of perspective when you get to the head coach chair. And that's why I think there is, you know, maybe that's a case for a Shane Beamer. It's a case for a Sam Pittman. Maybe it's a case for, you know, whoever that CEO coach is a Dabo Sweeney, maybe who is, is not looking at it through the, the uh, minutia of and the and just sort of like the granular viewpoint of a of a coordinator and and a, a game plan that's going to help your side of the ball. It's got to be about what's going to help the team win, and that can look a lot of different ways. I I completely agree with you, and and it's interesting you bring up Pittman because I I'd like to give Barry Barry Odom the truth serum. Say, hey, do you like coaching on the opposite side of Kendall Browse? Like like does Jay Bateman like being opposite of of Phil Longo? I mean, right. Even if you're great on an efficiency basis, your, your surface numbers, which a lot of ADs probably still look at because they don't really take into account how many plays and drives you have to defend, those surface numbers are, are not going to be great. I, what I want to hear if I'm an AD from a defensive coach is extreme confidence in my defense that if I go for it on fourth and two at my own 45, that's fine. 
because I'm a good enough defensive coach, my defense is going to hold no field goal more often than not, right? Like my, my the quality of my defense is going to enable my offense to take advantage of those situations more. You know what I mean? As opposed to the 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 punt thing. Like if, if I have a really good defense, I don't need to set up my really good defense. I want to give my offense every chance to to thrive, not waste possessions that that I can. That that's got to be the thinking I think for more of these defensive coaches to get hired. Yeah. This is it it's I think it's a really interesting you know question and something that you have to like push new coaches previous coordinators whatever and and push them out of their comfort zone and make sure they're thinking about the wins and not the you know not not the uh, their side of the ball or, or they're not sort of their perspective on sort of where they came from and, ha- and how a game has to be won because you can like games can be like if you're a defensive coach it's okay to win a game where they score a lot of points that's why I mean I know Nick Saban has these different sort of mental warfare type of approaches to things but like I I I don't think it was just uh, posturing when he came out of that Ole Miss game in a good mood. And he was like, you know what? Like, I understand there's an element of, of everyone's going to be telling Alabama that, the def- that they, they weren't any good that game and they gave up all these points. And so he's got to sort of take the, the alternate approach. But I also think that there is just a, uh, he just understands, hey, you know what? Ole Miss is going to score some points. That's just the way we're going to win this game. We won it, feeling good about it. And, and I'm not convinced that that Alabama, like, shifted what it does defensively all that much against Ole Miss. I think Saban was happy that he got out of that game. I'm not gonna say playing just nothing but base stuff, but I think that they basically just tried to play a very conservative style of game plan, and they realized they would win the war of attrition. They would be better when it got down to the red zone. I mean, Ole Miss hits big plays, but you know, like when it got down to the red zone, Bama would score. Ole Miss would kick a you know a few a few field goals. They would blink a little bit. And they'd get out of there. I, I don't think Saban wanted to try to teach a wildly different defense to his defense in that time frame. They didn't have a typical offseason to, you know, to wrap this in, in their seven on seven and whatever over the summer. Um, second part of Vol's question. Uh, oh, yeah, I forgot. We haven't even gotten to the second part. Is this raw? He said, I, I think this roster isn't that bad and it's mostly a quarterback problem. I guess. I just, it, I, it, I think that's a little bit of an easy way out because I, I did have that initial. Uh, reaction as this is in the early part of the season. And when, when Tennessee first started their little kind of slump, I was like, man, Tennessee's a quarterback away, but at some point you gotta, you gotta make just, just, it's not about the, the player. It's about the system. It's about giving your guys a chance to be successful. I'm, I think I'm more on that kick right now. It's, it's not that it's about, it's not that it's a quarterback away. It's a quarterback friendly system away. Um, and whether that means you got to change OCs or whether that means you just got to reassess things, I don't know, but I just feel like you got to make it easier on those guys at some point. Yeah, I, I think, I think they might be a coach away to, to be honest. Um, you know, they, they have been largely non-competitive in every game since Georgia, with the exception of the Auburn game where, where they actually came out and, and showed some fight, but like against Florida, you, you can't tell me they were playing to win. And this is not me saying Jeremy pro, you know, Jeremy Pruitt was throwing this game. But I do think he was trying to just get this game with as quickly as possible, right? They didn't throw a single pass on a standard down in the entire first quarter. They just wanted that clock to run, man. And it did. They only lost by 12. That's not that embarrassing. Did they ever have a shot to win that game? No, not even close. I, I didn't think even, even when they had the brief lead, they didn't. Because they weren't, they weren't showing like they, yeah. Anyway, 
um, that yeah, they were they were running clock from 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 the opening gun. Uh, who we got now? Chief Dog Ten. Chief Dog Ten. Who is the most successful son of a coach ever, and why is it Derek Dooley? <laughs> I wanted Derek Dooley to work, man. He was he was entertaining. He had strong press conferences. Yeah, Remember the shower lessons. He had shower lessons. We had history lessons. <laughs> I'm disappointed Derek Dooley didn't work. Um, okay. <clears throat> Best son of a coach. College only. I mean, I assume. Okay. I assume we should. Are you prepared for this? A little bit. I, I like my initial thought was uh, was Wade Phillips, right? The, the son of Bumfield, but but he's he's not college. I. It might be Terry Bowden who went undefeated at Auburn. You know, if they weren't on probation, they he you know would probably have a national title or or close to it. I mean, I'm thinking here. Do you have one? No, Charlie Saban's Weiss te- Jr. Charlie Weiss Jr. Budding star, offensive coordinator at USF. I don't know. I mean, I'm just thinking about like we're still early in his career. You know, was Pete Carroll's dad a coach? I, I don't think so. Like, like we have to have some rules here. It has to be like your dad was a was a not like more than just a high school. Yeah, coach. not just not like a high yeah. school coach. Right, right. Agreed. It might be Terry Bowden. Yeah, that's that's huh. that's my bad for not having my research done on that one. But I'm interested. Who I'm sure we've 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 we haven't considered somebody. So hit us in the comments. Hit us in the um, at us. I'm curious who's who the candidates are out there. At Barton Simmons at Bud Elliott three. Let us know. We we, we probably missed somebody there for sure. There's got to be somebody in the Big Ten who I'm not considering. Uh, that, that feels like a league where where your dad coached and you can coach too. <laughs> right. Right. Marcus asks, uh, smash that subscribe button on this one as soon as it came up on Twitter when I saw Barton and Bud were teaming up. Uh, just now getting around to leaving the review. No frills or gimmicks with this pod. Just two of the best college football insiders riffing and giving us unbiased info and opinion. Man, so we're insiders and unbiased. That is, that's high praise. He's actually in Australia, dude. Uh, and he says, I've been an expat in Australia for 10 years. It's been a blast to watch Nathan Chapman's Pro Kick Australia export all these Aussie rules kids up to the college football big stages as punchers. I'm wondering if you guys uh, have had a chance to check out any Aussie rules football uh, as it's a pretty fun game. There's plenty of physicality and the guys can place their kicks like surgeons. Anywho, keep up the awesome work. Cheers, fellas. Cheers, Marcus. Appreciate the question. Love it. So I, my sister lives in Sydney. So I've got, I've got a little, I, unfortunately, you know, current circumstances are preventing and as well as the three tiny little, Rugrats running around the house make it a little tough to get out there, but I do genuinely believe that the um, the reason all these Aussie rules football guys are so good as punters in the states in college football is because those guys are athletes. Those guys like the 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 you know in high school football the punter and kicker is usually the guy that's just a little bit nerdy and just didn't quite athletic enough to play the other positions. And so he worked on punting and kicking. I mean, I know I'm sorry, like, sorry for all the kickers out there that I'm offending. Cause I know that that's not true for all of you, but you know, for West, you know, Jackson high, that's just, that's probably what happened. Um, and so I think, you know, just looking at like, look in the NFL. I mean, the guys that are, 
that are good, good kickers, good punters are typically good athletes. And I just think that the athleticism uh, that those guys have to bring to the table by playing like a, a real dynamic sport is, is what really helps them in the college game. So uh, I think it's been so cool to watch that, that evolve and, and bleed into college football. Um, but I've, I've not spent a lot of time watching the Aussie rule stuff. Uh, I should, I bet it's entertaining. You, you mentioned flying down to Australia and obviously the difficulties right now with the whole pandemic. I, I kind of think of traveling with three young kids as sort of like you're just playing old Mrs. Offense, right? We're just going to play contain. We're not trying to blitz. We're not trying to do this crazy stuff. We just need to keep everybody sort of within an area. Like when, when you go on the plane, you know, she goes first carrying the baby and then you got, you got the two girls between you two and, and you're, you're, you're kind of playing like, like, like safety, right? Like nobody gets behind us. We're not going back up the ramp. It, it's. We, we have not flown with three yet. I don't know that I ever want to do that. I might wait till they're teenagers before we're ready to do that. That's that's not a bad idea. I, I did watch some Aussie rules football uh, when when the U.S. had like no sports going on, and the only things you could live bet on were like table tennis or uh, Aussie rules. I was like, I'm not going to live bet table tennis. Yeah, degenerate for sure. <laughs> you are you are so hardcore. That's I was looking you, at it. Man. I was like, all right. I was I was basically trying to find a live feed that updates faster than the live betting apps did. So you can, you know, kind of bet on stuff already knowing the score, um, but couldn't find that. But I did watch a little bit of Aussie rules. I, I still don't know all the rules, but it's, it's an entertaining game. Man. And those guys are tough. Like that is, not only they're athletic, like you said, but they take some shots, man. That, that is like, what, what do you think their insurance carriers are? Those, those are crazy. Hmm. I don't know, man. That's Brutal. but they, they, they're, they're good by me. They count. They get they get they get football credit as far as I'm concerned. They do. All right, uh, that's that's the end of the show. Uh, if we missed anything, messed up anything, let us know on Twitter. I'm sure you will. Five stars on Apple Podcasts, please, if y'all will. And uh, we'll be back with you Sunday evening, Monday morning. See you.